Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us. This is Airlines Confidential. This is Chris Chimes. And now this is Ben Baldanza. Thanks, Chris. We've got a great show today, which includes our guest, Helene Becker from Cowan Equity Research. We'll come back with Helene in a few minutes. But first, Chris, please start us out with a bit of quick news. Ben, on last week's show, we talked a bit about early signs of spring as it relates to airline IPOs and startups. Now we've got Airline March Madness to talk about with some interesting route launches in two somewhat unlikely geographies, Alaska and Eastern Europe. First on the domestic front, the skirmishes between Alaska and Delta have picked up again, with Delta bravely invading Alaska's strongholds and Alaska bravely pushing back against its much larger competitor. In this case, after Delta announced an expansion and equipment upgrades to five cities in Alaska from its mainland hubs, Alaska fired back with its first ever summer seasonal service between Anchorage and Minneapolis-St. Paul. That's in addition to several other new routes from Anchorage announced over the last month. And then out of Hungary, scrappy Wizz Air announced a somewhat eye-popping expansion of 120 new routes, that's 120, that it will launch across Europe starting in April and continuing through late summer. Lots of secondary markets and secondary airports, sometimes in direct competition of bigger players like EasyJet and Ryanair, other times opening up completely new nonstop service. But that is a lot of new planes, places, and people to bring on. So Ben, if you'll unpack this for us, First, Delta v. Alaska, and then the Wizards of Airline Place. (laughs) Well, let's talk about Delta, Alaska. You know, prior to COVID, Delta was building their position in Seattle. They've tried to use Seattle as really an Asian gateway and have recognized that to make big planes flying really long distances across the Pacific, it's really better if you can feed those from a lot of domestic flights. Now, at one point in history, Delta and Alaska were partners, or at least Horizon Air was, I think. And so, but Delta just said, we're going to own it. And it's not too different from what Delta's done on the other side of the country in Boston and what they've done in LaGuardia. Now, in LaGuardia, because it's slot control, they did a transaction with then U.S. Airways to get more of the slots there. I'm sure you remember that, Chris. Yep. But so, but in Boston and Seattle, they've just tried natively to say, we're going to become the major players in these places. Now, one of the things that's good about Delta as an economics play is that they have a dominant share in Atlanta, in Minneapolis and Detroit, and they're trying to sort of replicate those positions in other places because they recognize that when they have the predominance of the service in an area, they win a lot of the business and certainly a lot of the high fair paying business. But I don't expect Alaska to back down easy and starting that service to Minneapolis is a direct shot to Delta saying, we're not going to go without a fight here. 
So I think this is going to be a real interesting one to watch. Delta's a good airline, but Alaska's a very good airline too. And people, especially who live in the Northwest, not only like Alaska, if they don't work for Alaska, they probably have friends or relatives who do. <laughs> and so, right. and so my, my sense is Alaska is going to be a very strong competitor and just as JetBlue and others have sort of fought Delta in Boston, I think Alaska is going to put a bit of big fight there in Seattle and the Northwest. On the Wiz side, that shocked me when I saw they're starting 120 new routes. But Wiz has a history of starting a lot of new routes at one time. And then they see which ones work. And a year later, they're still doing some of them and maybe not doing some of them. But they've got a lot of planes, they've got a lot of growth, and this goes along with a theme that we've talked about in several podcasts here, Chris, which is the idea is that low-cost carriers just have more flexibility, and they can try new routes, they can go in with really low fares and try to create a market that didn't exist before by connecting maybe two cities on a nonstop basis. We've seen Allegiant do that really successfully in the U.S. We see... Um, David Nealman's new airline breeze saying they're going to do that. <laughs> and so I think it's great that we're getting new service to new places. If you live in Eastern Europe or in where Wizz Air serves, to be able to connect a lot of new markets, I think that's what airlines are great at. I hope they're successful with all of these routes, but it'll be interesting to see sort of a year from now of these 120, are they still flying 110 of them or only 80 of them? Yeah, the, the Wizz Air roster of new routes, some of them were so obscure that I have to wonder if anyone's going to even you know, know if they go away. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it was really aggressive. And like you said, it's kind of what they've done previously, but it was that 120. That's just a lot of places to get people or open up stations or even find contractors to run the stations. There's just a lot to, to do in that kind of period of time. I think the interesting thing about the Delta Alaska deal is it is Delta taking the battle to a new turf. I mean, before the focus was Seattle, now they're going to Alaska, not really a business market. Alaska's got a lot of service out of Anchorage. They fly to Hawaii and some other big cities and and some vacation destinations. So it just was kind of moving the fight somewhere else. But again, we've talked a lot about airlines have got a lot of planes to move around right now because business markets aren't performing. And so they thought they'd give, give it a try. But I don't think Alaska's going to back down like you pointed out. Well, leisure seems to be where it is right now, Chris. And you've got a lot of airlines sort of saying building up in leisure spots and reorienting their networks. And it's funny, you know, you and I both spent many years at some higher cost airlines who all the focus was on the business travelers. So it's interesting to watch the industry pivot towards sort of a little more of a leisure focus, at least in their capacity deployment for now. So Ben, this open runway for opportunity that we've just been talking about is probably a good uh, topic of discussion with our guest this week. Uh, do you want to take the controls and introduce her? Sure, Chris. We do have a great guest this week, but before I introduce Elaine, I want to thank our friends at the specialty finance firm of Seabury Capital, with a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services, and technologies. Their widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships in industry finance and government. You can learn more at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital.com. 
We're really excited to have with us today, Helene Becker. Helene is um, what's called an equity analyst at Cowan Securities. Helene, why don't you start by introducing yourself and tell us exactly what an equity analyst does? Um, Hi, Ben. Thanks. And thanks very much for having me. It's really terrific to be here. Yes, I'm Helene Becker. Um, I'm a managing director at Cowan. And as a research analyst, um, or financial analyst is another word for what we do, um, we do deep dives into companies. In my case, I cover airlines and uh, aircraft leasing. And so what, what my mission is, is to help our investors, who in my case would be institutional investors, people that you would recognize as Fidelity, Wellington, hedge fund managers, folks like that who are investing your money through 401ks or through direct investments into stocks. And I cover the stock side as opposed to the bond side, but I do understand the complete capital structure of an airline company. Well, that's fantastic, Helene. I'm sure that there are a lot of our listeners who know your kind of position in the industry, but some who'd learned how important this kind of role is for the industry. So why don't you start by telling us how are investors viewing the airline industry today with COVID, you know, people losing cash? What are investors thinking about this crazy industry? Yeah, it's been really a crazy year. I mean, it's been pretty bleak for the industry. You know, we thought a year ago it would take five years, three to five years for domestic airline traffic to return to pre-pandemic levels and up to seven years for international traffic to return. And here we are a year later. And at this point, we actually think domestic leisure traffic is at or slightly above pre-pandemic levels. We are starting to see travel at uh, TSA checkpoints in, in excess of a million a day. Uh, and really since the beginning of the month. And we were concerned that we wouldn't actually see spring break. And we, in fact, are seeing pretty strong traffic to places where you can be outdoors. It seems like people want to be outdoors. And also, Ben, seems like people who are getting vaccinated are feeling more and more comfortable about traveling. And we're definitely seeing those folks, um, especially older folks, start visiting their grandchildren, And I think from the airline perspective, we're starting to hear that the airlines are thinking they'll be back to cash break even. And of course, it depends how they define cash break even. Um, Everybody has a slightly different definition, different definition of what that exactly means. Um, But coming out of this quarter, be back to, to some level of cash break even. And then we are thinking profitability starting in the third quarter and going into the fourth quarter. And obviously, a lot of the recovery is going to depend on what happens in international and business traffic, both of which we think will take longer to come back than domestic leisure. Helene, that's a pretty bullish uh, outlook uh, for the industry. So I'm sure people are happy to hear that point of view. Obviously, the federal aid over the last eight to 10 months has helped the industry tremendously. But part of the trick of taking advantage of this rebound is making good decisions and being able to hang on and write it out. Um, Which airlines have impressed you the most uh, during this last year? Yeah, you know, the industry has done a really great job of, A, working with their employees and trying to get to a point where they don't have to furlough anybody, and B, getting to the point of cutting costs. So it's really a revenue issue for the industry, and really that comes, in my opinion, and that comes down to just getting things open. People are willing to travel. We're seeing that. 
but we need to have our borders open. I think the airlines that have done a really good job, obviously, have been, I, I think, actually, across the board, we've seen really good work from everybody. I can't really say anybody's done worse than anyone else. You know, it takes, you may not know this, actually, it takes a year to retrain a pilot um, off of a, a furlough. So the fact that none of the big three airlines furloughed pilots is really huge because this is the point in a cycle, in an economic cycle, where you would normally have new startups and you would be able to do that because A, aircraft would be cheap, and B, you would have a lot of folks unemployed that would be looking for work. And you don't really have that now. Airlines, especially the three big airlines, encouraged their older pilots, so say pilots from maybe 58, 59 to 64, to retire early. Mandatory retirement age for pilots is 65, and so it's not a secret when your 65th birthday is. And all the airlines said, you know, if you were thinking of retiring in the next three years, let's say, why don't you think about retiring now? That way they could keep as many at the low end of the seniority list on staff because it's typically last in first out. And I thought all the airlines did that fairly well. The other thing I thought the industry did fairly well was pivot to cargo, especially American and United did a really terrific job of pivoting to carry um, vaccine and to carry other cargo, especially because internationally you just don't have that belly capacity that you would normally have. And then I thought Delta is kind of interesting. They continue to block their middle seats and will do so to the end of April, um, which means that they'll be able to add capacity without adding aircraft. And obviously that will have huge positive implications for um, operating margins. So as we sit here in late March, if you had a chance to give advice to airline CEOs right now, what would you tell them to focus on for the next 90 days? I think the key element is working with governments to get borders open. And I I think as people get vaccinated and you get that card, I, I received half my dose, right? I received the first dose. I get a vaccine card. When I go back for my second dose, I bring it. And now I'm clear to travel uh, two weeks later, right? So in my case, by the middle of April, I'll be good to go. I think if we can encourage governments to think about reopening their borders safely, obviously, we want everything to be safe. But we need to get we need to get past this, in my opinion, I would tell the airline CEOs to start working with the government to get borders reopened. Because if we have received our vaccine and we still can't travel, what was the point of us getting vaccinated? If the idea that we were sent home to flatten the curve last year, and then it turned out we were really sent home to wait for a cure, well, we're not gonna get a cure. This may be endemic. So we need to figure out ways to safely reopen things. I would tell the CEOs to do exactly that. That, that's great advice, Elaine. You know, what you mentioned about the long training cycle for new pilots, I imagine that was one of the reasons that the government did step up through payroll protection plans three different times. I'm sure union leaders sort of made that point very strongly and that carried that through. We know you're not in the business of giving advice to union leaders, but do you want to give them some anyway? No, actually, I agree with you, um, Ben. I thought that the 
the thing that surprised me the most or maybe impressed me the most having done this for a really long time, right? This is my, I don't know, fourth decade covering airlines. We've never seen a time like this, number one. And number two, we've never seen a time when the management and unions have worked so closely together and so well together. I would love for the unions to think about, and, and for management too, really, to think about everything they've been able to accomplish in the last year. And as we get back to the next normal, to really think about what they did so successfully for the past one year and continue to do that successfully for the next two decades and you know maybe even into forever because things are going to change pretty dramatically in this decade and into 2030 and 2040 time frame and this is a little off topic but you know airlines are working really hard to lower their carbon footprint either through carbon recapture and sequestration or sustainable aviation fuels or, you know, whatever uh, carbon offsets, I guess, is the other big one that they've been doing. And it would be really terrific if, as things change from a technology perspective, that everybody continues to work together. I mean, I'm like not trying to describe a kumbaya moment, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think everything they manage to get done is, is so impressive to me given that I've been doing this for so long and I've seen, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly with respect to this industry. Um, but I was thinking about this, Ben and Chris, when I first started covering airlines, we were flying 727s. So those were three crew, three engine aircraft. And we're sh we shifted to the 737 and then ultimately the A319 and the A320. So we shifted to two crew, two engine aircraft. And now here we are, you know, four decades later and Aircraft decisions that are made today will carry the airlines into the 2040, 2050 timeframe, and everybody has pledged to lower their carbon footprint by 50% from 2019 levels by then. So when you think about that, it's going to take everybody working together to think about how we're going to go, you know, maybe two pilots to one pilot. We're already seeing unmanned flight take place. And um, with, with companies like Joby, Volocopter, these guys are certifying for one pilot in, the, in their cockpits, but eventually they're gonna, their plan is to go to no pilots. So things will change. And I would love for what everybody accomplished in the last year to continue to accomplish more going forward. That's great, Helene. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, how low-cost carriers have been able to probably take advantage a little bit more of the situation and are in a better position moving forward. But do, do you agree with that assessment about the prospects for low-cost carriers uh, kind of post-pandemic? I do, actually, I do. We have buy ratings on Allegiant, Alaska, JetBlue. I'm not sure they're exactly ultra-low-cost carriers, but Spirit, we have a buy on as well. Um, so we, we have quite a lot of buys on the domestic out, um, focused airlines with maybe some Caribbean and Mexico exposure in northern northern South America. The, the Americas are actually not doing as badly. I think Europe is about four months behind the U.S., but everybody in our hemisphere seems to be handling this fairly well. I think that... The low-cost and ultra-low-cost airlines will do extremely well from a balance sheet perspective. They haven't had 
just because they're smaller, they haven't had to borrow quite as much money as, as United and, and American have as an example. All three of the big carriers have quite substantial cash positions now and huge liquidity. And obviously, if things, maybe not so obvious, but if things turn around faster than we think, then they'll use some of that cash to pay down that debt and shore up the balance sheet. But when you think about the cost of that capital, even at low cost interest rates of between 2 and 4%, they still borrowed a lot of money and they still have to pay the interest on that. So the three big carriers are paying about $1.4, $1.5 billion annually in interest expense. So when you kind of work through the math, and it's just pure math, and you look at cost plus interest expense, and you look at the revenue, you see they have to raise revenue or ticket prices by at least, by our math, something like $17, $18 just to cover the increase in interest expense, which means to the extent a low-cost airline doesn't have that big debt position, they're in a better position to have lower ticket prices. And regardless of what people say, they still look for the lowest price ticket. And as long as the service is similar, um, once you get on board the plane, as long as the flight takes off on time or within 15 or 20 minutes, I suppose, of your stated departure time, uh, much more than that, I think you get a bad reputation. But within 15 minutes, I think you're okay. You know, we think that demand will accrue to the airlines with low fares and low fares, low costs can generate low fares. And that means you can be more profitable. So yeah, we definitely think the low cost airlines have a chance. That's fantastic, Helene. And you talked about math. So let's talk a little more about math. I assume for <laughs> the job you do to, to talk about that 17% number so specifically, you must build models or spreadsheets of as to earnings, what airlines are going to do, making assumptions around costs and fuel and capital expense and things like that. With so much uncertainty in the future, how do you build those models today and how much credence do you give them? Yeah, that's a great question, Ben. So here's how I do it. I start with the cost because that's pretty known. I know what labor costs are doing right now, for an example, and I know what fuel costs are doing, and I use the forward curve for jet fuel prices. So um, those numbers are the fuel price numbers published on a daily basis, and labor and fuel are the two biggest costs I have to forecast. And together, depending on where fuel is, they're anywhere from 50 to 70% of my total expense line. And then I know the aircraft the airlines have for depreciation, and I do a line item model exactly like that. And then once I have my expense number, I go back to the revenue side of the equation, and I look at what the airline might generate from fees and what they might generate from ticket prices. So most of the airlines have eliminated change fees, which has huge implications when it comes to overbooking, but we can save that for another discussion. I do my best to forecast what average airfares are. I subscribe to several services that mine, that that find that data for us, and we, we get it once a week on Friday afternoons, and we publish every Sunday night what the average fares are looking like. Pre-pandemic, we were about $500. Now we're about 230 dollars or less. 
Although I have to tell you, Ben, I'm going to Florida next week to see my dad. And I fly out of Newark because I live in northern New Jersey. And initially, I was going to go to West Palm, where when I went online, it was a $1,000 round trip. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I said, forget it. And then I looked around and Fort Lauderdale was about 30%, 40% cheaper. So, um, and the, the time was better. My daughter doesn't live far from, uh, she lives in Northern Virginia. So she and I are going to meet in Fort Lauderdale and our flights get in within five minutes of each other. But I think that you're going to see that ticket price moving higher, uh, especially for, destinations, warm weather destinations where you can do outdoor stuff. And, you know, we do our best to forecast. And obviously, we check every week and, and every month. And we keep adjusting so that we can be right um, more often than we're wrong. But it's um, right now, to your point, it's not that easy because things are changing so rapidly, capacity is changing so rapidly, demand seems to be very strong. And the airlines pulled a lot of capacity out of the network, um, obviously, to conserve cash. And you don't want to fly money losing routes, right? And, and a year ago, I think April 14th was the absolute worst day ever, 80, well, ever, but in years and years, 87,000 people traveled on that day versus a normal day would have been pre-pandemic to roughly two and a half million people traveling. And now we're back to about a million three, a million four. So we're starting to see pretty good numbers and we're doing our best to kind of apportion it via airline. So that's the other thing we would do is, you know, buy, buy the market share each airline has. And then we listen to what they say. They very often talk about, what their pricing is doing. And so we try to glean that. And then, of course, I have models that go back to, you know, years and years. And so we we extrapolate what we learned in 0102 and 0809 to now to figure out that business traffic, I mean, inter international is just going to be dependent on borders opening. And I think that's dependent on vaccine and and how comfortable governments feel about the 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 pan, you know, the virus, I guess, getting spreading among people. So that's that's kind of how we do it. It's I'd like to say it's a science, but it's not. It's more of an art. And the longer you do it, the easier it becomes. One of the great things about this industry, I think, is the many many ways you can participate in it. Right. right. And I'm sure that uh, our listeners really enjoyed your insights today. And I bet some of them learned about a whole new role in this industry that they didn't even know existed before. Well, there's there's so many things you can do in this industry. I always tell people that it's um, finance is just one of them and you can trans transfer between Industries, you can go from finance in, in an airline, for example, if you're financial planning and analysis, to become a securities analyst. It's not a, it's not a difficult leap. Or you can go from my role to there's investor relations. That's a pretty exciting role. That's the IR professionals do pretty much what I do, but they have perfect knowledge. And so about like, one company. About one company. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then they can, um, but, you know, again, there are services that everybody gets. Um, there's a service called DOME, which is ex rather expensive service, but 
they do have an inex they have a free version i think innovative data that you can actually go online to and you can see airline schedules and you can see what they're intending to do um one of my associates does that every saturday and and then i look them over sundays so i generally try to have one screen free day and that's saturday and then six days so so that's my the way I work. But yeah, Ben, there's so much you can do either on my side or, or what, you know, you used to obviously run an airline. You, you were many airlines, you were not many airlines that you ran, but many airlines with that you were involved in um, and still are. And, and it's pretty exciting. And I think the issue for airline people, as, and you probably would agree with me on this, is that once you get the bug, it's hard to get out of it, right? <laughs> right? It's hard. I, I spent about 18 months of my career on a distressed equity trading desk. And distressed means companies that are bankrupt or nearly bankrupt. And it was good training for me, having been an airline analyst, to move to this other related industry. But the soon as, as soon as I got a chance to go back to just focusing on airlines, I grabbed it. <laughs> So it's hard to to not it's hard to to walk away from this space. It's it's really fun and exciting and and that's the other thing about my career in general. Like no two days are the same. I could I could have a company report bad earnings one day and miss our number, which is always I always view that as a um as my final exam, if I get the earnings estimate right, then I've gotten an A. And if I get it wrong, depending upon how far off I am, I either get a C or an F. But the but the thing is, is, you know, if the stock is down, let's say 10% because they missed the quarter, and very often you'll hear them on CNBC talking about things like that, or Bloomberg or any one of the other places where people talk about things like that. The next day will be a better day. <laughs> Stock might be up a percent or two, or people will forget that, you know, you told them that there was going to be an earnings surprise and there was, but in the wrong direction. <laughs> and, and you do, to do this job too, you have to have a thick skin because you, you, you're wrong. I mean, I never cast aspersions at any of my competitors for having a different view than me because I'm wrong as often as they are. And, I make enough mistakes on my own without, you know, throwing stones. So it's a great career. It's a great job. I love the airlines. I mean, I can't say enough good stuff about it. You meet great people as well. The people in the industry seem to be pretty good people. It's probably true in other industries as well. But airline people tend to be very passionate about what they're doing. Well, you haven't been in this business for 40 years by being wrong very many times. So uh, don't, don't sell yourself short. So. Thank you. Thanks I a lot, Helene. We enjoyed this. Oh, thanks very much. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate you doing this. I'm sure all of our listeners do. And uh, anytime you want to pitch Airlines Confidential to your people, let them know. We'll do that. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Airlines Confidential wants to thank TA Connections. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections, paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. 
TA Connections procures over 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. TA Connections monitors and tracks room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and that you only pay for what was consumed. Learn more at taconnections.com. That's taconnections.com. TA Connections, a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, Chris, I really enjoyed our conversation with Helene. I thought she had some terrific insights and clearly the fact that she's worked in the industry for a long time and has access to sort of management teams at all these airlines gives her some unique insights. Don't you agree? Very much so. And her very, you know, logical, calm approach to things is why she's successful in, in kind of making sense of sometimes the mayhem of the airline business and explaining it to investors. Although I had a chuckle, even a financial analyst working in this business who wants to see airlines be profitable chases the lowest fare when she was talking about uh, <laughs> booking a trip to Florida. So you know, she she proved uh, your point, which is price is king so much of the time for travelers. It's time for listener questions. And our first one is from a caller, actually. Chad left us a message on our voicemail box. So let's listen to that. And Ben, you can respond. Hey, this is Chad. Um, I work in the ultra-low-cost carrier sector, and uh, your latest show got me thinking about something. Um, in the Allegiant earnings call that just happened, uh, CEO Maury Gallagher said uh, something that struck me, which is the other guys are playing our game now. And uh, in the ultra-low-cost carrier sector, obviously you guys know there's a carrier-imposed fee assessed on each booking, uh, which is not made in person at the ticket counter, so vast majority, you could say. That fee, uh, which is called different things depending on the airline, uh, exists in kind of a gray area because it is an airfare. And on any particular flight that you might look at, the airfare might be under a dollar, but that fee, uh, which could be called the passenger usage charge or the carrier usage charge, uh, could be eighteen, twenty, thirty dollars, uh, which is intriguing because kind of like that fee, boarding pass fees, bag fees, they're not taxed like, uh, like airfare is. So my question is, do you see the major carriers, the network carriers, shifting toward imposing fees kind of like that going forward after COVID to, you know, change the business model to play the other guy's game, so to speak? And if so, is there concern that the DOT might take steps to control that behavior? Uh, I really appreciate it and love the show. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you very much for your question, Chad, and thanks for calling it in. I think it's a great point that you bring up about sort of ancillary revenues and the passenger usage fee. You know, that fee is allowed to be charged because one of the things the DOT or Department of Transportation requires is if you can't avoid it, you must include it as part of your fare. But airlines sort of get away with that, if you will, because you can avoid that fee by buying your ticket at an airport. 
Now, not a lot of people are going to drive to an airport to buy their ticket to save that fee. But if they really want to save the fee, they could. So they're allowed to charge it as an excess fee and maybe charge a little lower fare and add that to the fee. That whole strategy of unbundling and charging for things that used to be part of the ticket has been successful for airlines for a couple of reasons, Chad. One, you mentioned that they don't pay taxes on that part of the fee, and that's true, but I don't think that's really been a driving reason that airlines do it. The biggest reason, I think, is it allows them to sell a lower price, and when the ticket prices are lower, more people fly. It also takes advantage of an economic situation called price elasticity. We all react to different prices in different ways. And the way we buy things as prices change is called price elasticity. And what the industry's found out is that the price elasticity for tickets is very high, meaning when ticket prices go up, people don't travel as much, or when they go up to one location, maybe they choose an alternative destination that has lower fares. But once they decide they're going, whether the bag price is $25 or $30 doesn't really change the number of bags that are purchased. So airlines have realized that by putting more of their revenue in this ancillary bucket and less in the ticket, they can ultimately get more total dollars because they're taking advantage of that price elasticity difference that customers think when they buy things. I know that's kind of a geeky kind of answer to the question. Chris can probably explain it you know, in a much easier way. <laughs> uh, well, Ben, I'm not going to try to outsmart you on economics. I, I think what the industry needs to realize, though, is as they continue to look at fees as a source of revenue, they're somewhat playing into the hands of airports who want to increase the passenger facility charge. Because you can't argue that the PFC depresses travel, but you still keep putting more fees in place yourself on passengers. <laughs> so, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And I understand why fees are, are an important part of the revenue stream. But at some point, their arguments on Capitol Hill about there's no need for an increased PFC are going to ring hollow. So they need to be prepared for that um, when they're asked that question. That's a great point, Chris. Well, Chris, our next question comes from Tanya, and I'm going to let you take this one. She doesn't give her hometown, but it's an important question. Ben and Chris, I enjoy the show and would like your thoughts on something very personal to me. I'm a female African-American pilot who would be on furlough if not for the federal payroll protection support in the industry, so I'm thankful for that. I feel that most of the industry is taking diversity efforts very seriously. Thank you for that, Tanya. But this past year of furloughs and layoffs showed that we might be in a two steps forward, one step backward mode for a while. While the seniority system, or with the seniority system, women and pilots of color who are lower on the list are at most risk. I'm not suggesting the seniority system be thrown out, but more about asking how do airlines continue to make progress? Wow. Um, that's a great question, Tanya, and very timely because uh, actually I was reading a story this week and I'm sure a lot of our listeners saw uh, some of the coverage that some of the analysis pr is projecting that literally decades of progress by women in the workplace are going to be impacted by the pandemic. So it, it's an important thing to watch as it relates to airline opportunities. 
Ben, I don't want to dismiss the here and now of Tanya's question, but I, I think there's some upside to the fact there's long-term growth prospects, both in the airline business and also the projected pilot shortage. To meet that demand means that there'll be plenty of opportunities for pilot careers and pilot growth once we get past this COVID detour. And Tanya, I'm glad you personally avoided the furloughs, uh, but know that many others have not been as lucky. On the labor side of the equation, the issue is clearly on the radar of union leaders. And my sense is that they are supportive and prepared to collaborate with management on not just the recruitment of a diverse workforce, but also creating a more inclusive workplace. Uh, ALPA, for one, has established a working group uh, in acknowledgement of the role they've got to play in the pilot sector. And while management can be very successful on the recruiting side, it can fall apart if the workplace side isn't inclusive and people don't feel welcome. So there's still a lot airlines can do that has nothing to do with seniority. Uh, Senior management ranks are still pretty underrepresented in the diversity uh, category. Frankly, so are many areas of middle management. As it relates to the pilot group, you know, what about check airmen and air women or base managers and other management positions that interact with frontline workers? I think it's a commitment up and down the ranks that people need to see from the boardroom to the frontline and clearly as Helene was talking about earlier, these are the kinds of things where management and labor can work together moving forward. That's a great answer. And Tanya, thanks for flying in this industry. And I agree, we need to see more women in cockpits and more people of color in cockpits as well and everywhere in in the airlines. I'm glad you're working. And you know, like we talked with Helene, this idea that it takes a long time to train pilots and so the payroll support was really, really important for this industry to keep people employed, minimize the number of furloughs. Ben, uh, you know, it might be interesting to have a guest on to really address this subject and uh, you know, how do airlines move forward with their employees to create this diverse workforce everybody wants. And um, you know, certainly there's more expertise out there than what you and I can contribute. So Tanya, thanks for bringing it up and um, let's... Let's look to have this conversation again. Airlines Confidential will be right back with finer wine. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. At a lot of leisure destinations, too, where airlines are flying. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. Ben, our finer wine is from Ahmed of Franklin, Wisconsin, regarding an experience with Lufthansa. Gentlemen, I booked a Lufthansa flight for a minor passenger to travel with his grandmother. They were on separate reservations. The return tickets were changed because of scheduling changes by the airline, and they were separated on two different airlines. One stayed on Lufthansa, and the other on Austrian connecting with Egypt Air over London on the return. When the minor arrived in London, he was refused travel to the U.S., even though he had a valid visa. We were never notified about this potential, and he was stranded at Heathrow for two days by himself, and then we were finally able to book him a return flight to Egypt to be with family there. My request to the travel agency to help with the refund was referred to Lufthansa. Lufthansa told me to call Austrian. Austrian told me to call the agency. Lufthansa finally offered me credit for half the ticket for next year for the young man who was traumatized and has no interest in flying anytime soon. I'm still very unhappy and very angry with Lufthansa. 
Ben, this sounds this sounds like a little bit of a nightmare, but what's your point of view? Well, I think this is a complete nightmare, and this is as far from a whine as I think we've ever heard on the show. <laughs> I feel terrible for the, for Ahmed, and I feel terrible for the young man who had to go through this. I can't imagine traveling with a minor, and then they go on a separate airline connecting in a different place and then are held up. That's just absolutely amazing. You know, I have to wonder about sort of what happened when they were separated in the first place and that Lufthansa wouldn't have, you know, they're a good organization. And if he was truly traveling as an as a minor, which maybe he wasn't in their formal sort of unaccompanied minor program since he was accompanied, but that they would separate them with somebody maybe that young, as Ahmed talks about. I'm just shocked at this whole situation. I'm shocked it would have happened. I'm shocked Lufthansa wouldn't have sort of apologized up and down about this. And I clearly hope that the young man who was traumatized, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad, I guess, that he got eventually where he was going safely. But I'm sure that was a real rough you know, hours or half a day or day in that guy's life. I feel terrible about this, Chris. Yeah. I mean, as you point out, Ben, the minor status could have been he was 17 or almost 18 and then therefore didn't need to travel as an identified UM. Maybe the family didn't want to pay the UM fee. There's a bunch of things unanswered, but overall, somebody should have been on the other end of the phone at Lufthansa answering this family's questions and helping resolve this. But yeah, it certainly underscores the importance of if, if a minor's flying and especially on an international route like this, you, you might need to pay the fee and do the things you're trying to avoid to ensure their safety. But uh, I agree, this is definitely a, a very uh, deserving fine to complain about. Well, thanks. As we get ready to wrap up for this week, I want to remind our listeners that we love your feedback, comments, or questions. Remember, we have a new phone number, which is 202-964-0177. So like Chad, you can use that one. Or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the links to contact us. We're also available on all the major podcast platforms, and we're available via Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Ben, my shout out for the week goes to Brad Tilden, who is retiring next week after 30 years with Alaska Airlines and the last eight as their CEO. Alaska's had a series of outstanding leaders who have kept that airline nimble, focused on passenger service, growth, and technology. So congrats to Brad. And best of luck to Ben Minacucci, who becomes CEO on March 31st, the same day that Alaska formally joins the One World Alliance. You know, funny, it's Chris that you used that shout out because my shout out was going to be generally to Alaska Airlines, not because Brad Tilden's gone. I'm sure that's a big <laughs> loss for them, but for fighting back against Delta. It's not that Delta's this big, mean carrier, but they are big. And the industry really benefits from competition. Alaska is a good airline that provides a good service to a lot of their customers. And I think rather than shrink in the face of competition, growing and 
acting in the interest of good competition by adding the kind of things, the schedules that we talked about, I think is the way this industry competes. I think it's great for consumers. It's great for the team in Alaska. And hopefully will be a real rallying cry at that airline that this is our space. We're going to win it. I'm not wishing anything badly on Delta, right? If Delta can be successful and Alaska can be there, that's great. But you don't win by beating other people down. You win by all being great for customers. Definitely. Hopefully pretty soon there's going to be plenty of passengers for everybody. Well, I agree with that. And with that, I'm Ben Baldanza signing off till next week. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.